Welcome back to the Carnivore Yogi Podcast. This is episode 15, and today I sat down with Dr. Stephen Hussey to talk about what the actual data says about cholesterol, heart disease, and heart attacks. He has a brand new book out called Understanding the Heart, which will be linked in the information section in the description, the show notes for you guys, so you can check that out. But I wanted to break this down a little bit more for those of us who are in this space eating a higher fat diet, and perhaps we do have a cholesterol that is what is considered high, and what we need to actually look for when we are considering how metabolically healthy we are, how healthy we are, period. And so we did go into that as well. The other thing that we talked about is this whole idea of metabolic flexibility, because this is a really hot topic lately. There are a lot of people, and a lot of them have come onto my show, that say that you need to have some carbs, you need to be able to tolerate them, because if you do keto, carnivore, low carb for a really long time, you're gonna create metabolic inflexibility. And yeah, this podcast is about being meat-based and dogma-free and not standing in an echo chamber, but I did wanna speak with somebody who is a little bit more inside of this carnivore keto space and see what they had to say about this issue of metabolic flexibility, metabolic inflexibility. You know, Dr. Hussey, we didn't talk about it so much in this episode, but he actually has managed his type 1 diabetes very well using a carnivore diet. Now he has added some foods back in and he's playing around with maybe like sweet potato and a couple of things, but he was carnivore very strictly for a couple of years. And so I think that he can really speak well to this issue. We also talked about heart rate variability, which I think this is a real marker of inflammation in the body, of understanding how well we're, we're recovering, how well we can adapt, and I don't think people really understand HRV as well as they could. So again, this episode hopefully is going to be really helpful for you guys, especially if you do have a little bit of those higher cholesterol numbers, but your overall health has improved so much. We really do go into you know, what you need to look for. And speaking of what you need to look for, the sponsor of today's episode is Let's Get Checked. And so this is a service I have used for the last year and a half. It has been extremely helpful. You can get blood work done at home. You can check things like your CRP, your C-reactive protein, which is a mark of inflammation in the body. And I think that you know, for peace of mind, if someone might have higher cholesterol numbers, look at your CRP. This is something Dr. Hussey and I talked about, and there will be a link in the show notes for you guys so that you can order your own CRP test and you can use my code, which is YOGI20, all caps, to get 20% off your order from Let's Get Checked. It's a great service. The other thing that Dr. Hussey says that you could check is your liver enzymes. So you can go Use the link in the show notes, use my code YOGI20, and you can also check in on your liver enzymes. That's another way that you can tell if there's some oxidative stress going on in the body. You can check your A1C, you can check your cholesterol also, but Let's Get Checked has just been a really great service for me. I've used it to follow up on my hormones. As you guys, a lot of you know, I have experienced with way too much fasting, kind of a place where my hormones tanked for a while. And so this is something I've been able to do without having to go to the doctor and get a blood draw, go through that whole rigmarole of going to the doctor's office, parking, driving, being out and about. You can do all this from your home. So again, thank you to Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this episode. 
And those links will be in the show notes. You can use my code YOGI20 to get your discount. So enjoy the show and I'll talk to you guys again soon. All right, you guys, thank you so much for coming back and tuning in. I'm really excited about my guest today, Dr. Stephen Hussey. Now he has been on my YouTube channel before. He actually helped me to go over some blood work about a year ago that I was worried, concerned about, and really put my mind at ease. So I'll make sure to link that video for you guys. But today we are going to really hopefully get to the bottom of some things about the heart. He has a brand new book that he just wrote just recently, just came out. What is it like a a week ago that it came out for purchase? A week and a half ago. Awesome. So it was a brand new book, really diving into a lot of these questions that you guys have about the heart, have about cholesterol, have about different things that we have just been told over and over again that may or may not be true to you. So uh, Dr. Hussey, welcome. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, it's good to be here. I'm happy to be back and excited about the conversation. Yeah, it's it's great. And you know, a lot of us that are in this space, we have that question. And I was just talking to you before I turned the camera on, you know, I get messages constantly in my Instagram DMs. And then now I'm running these private groups. And the big thing is, you know, cholesterol, cholesterol, cholesterol. Um, I'm worried, I'm scared. I started this way of eating. And now look at, you know, I went to my doctor and this is what I've got. So I know that's like a big, broad question, <laughs> but um, let's talk a little bit about how your your book and, and how your work kind of can help put people's mind at ease if they do have those those higher numbers. Yeah. Um, and and that, you know, is, is a perfect intro to the book, because my my main goal in this book is not to not to say, you know, because I'm not a cardiologist, I'm not a cardiac researcher. I'm just interested in this subject because of my own health journey. And, um, and I've done a lot of research on it. And so my goal in the book is not to say, oh, cardiologists are wrong and blah, blah, mm. blah. It's to open up the discussion um, about heart disease because it's the leading cause of death in the world. And um, clearly we're not doing something right. Uh, and so, yeah, I get a lot of these messages too where people just want to know about cholesterol. And that, and that kind of illustrates my point uh, in that all the talk about heart disease is focused on this one biomarker, this either total cholesterol or LDL. And, um, and, and my goal is really to broaden the discussion because there's way more uh, when it comes to heart disease and there's way uh, better biomarkers to be tracking um, if you want to go that route to track things um, that, that we could be looking at. Uh, and I talk about those in the book. But just the other day, uh, I came across for the second time, I'd forgotten about this, but for the second time there was a, they were trying to develop new um, cholesterol medications, um, you know, slightly different than than statins, and uh, and um, and different than the PCSK9 inhibitors that are the newer ones too. And uh, this was back in 2016. They were testing this drug, and it's got a big long pharmaceutical name. I can't remember the name of it, but it's um, they were testing the drug, and they had to halt the trial um, because they were showing no benefit whatsoever. Cholesterol was going down in these patients because the drug was working for that, but it, it didn't reduce the risk um, or the incidence uh, in these patients of stroke or heart attack or any cardiovascular um, um, uh, disease or disorder or, or um, event. And so that right there should tell you that, you know, if we lower cholesterol and it has no effect on this, then why are we so obsessed with lowering it? Um, mm-hmm. And so then you look at, you know, historically, 
all the uh, the studies on statins, which I go through a lot of different ones in the book, um, and they give us very, very minimal benefit, um, sometimes like, you know, 1% benefit. And so the argument there is that um, is it because of their lowering cholesterol or is it because that statins also have this pyotropic effect of anti-inflammation, um, a very small one? And so is it that small anti-inflammatory effect of them that's giving us that or is it the lowering cholesterol? And so looking through all this stuff, you start to realize that, you know, influencing this, this one um, biomarker um, is not really giving us the outcome that we want, yet it's continually prescribed. It's the most commonly prescribed drug, or one of the most commonly prescribed drugs, is this cholesterol-lowering medication. And then you look at the, um, you look at all the research that shows all the beneficial things that cholesterol does in our body, and it just starts to paint this picture of focusing on this biomarker doesn't make sense. You know, cholesterol is essential for our bodies. Um, it does so many beneficial things, um, and. Uh, and even at high amounts doesn't seem to be causative in disease um, or when we lower it doesn't seem to prevent the disease so i think that we need to steer the conversation away from just cholesterol and you know obviously if you want to look at that and and look at a lipid panel then that's fine but you want to look at it in conjunction with everything else going on in the person's life um, and on their blood work panel so yeah i think that you know Hopefully the book opens the conversation there um, yeah. because there's so many little details that I go into in the book about cholesterol, which we can talk about if you like, yeah. but, um, but, uh, but really the big picture is that we need to steer the conversation in a different direction. Yeah. A couple of things, you know, I've heard is that there's actually a little bit more of a correlation with people with lower cholesterol and mortality. Is that what you've found in some of your research? Yeah, so there's this one study um, that I talk about in the book uh, that they they took. I think it was from like 2006 to 2011. Um, uh, they took as they had like a bunch of different hospitals participating in the study, and when people presented with a heart attack to the emergency room, uh, you know they took their um, cholesterol numbers within 24 hours of them being admitted, and um, it ended up being like their total data set was like 60% of the heart attacks that happened from 2006 to 2011. So it was a big sample. Mm. Um, and what they found was that um, these people presenting with a heart attack, um, I don't remember the exact numbers, but I, I think that whether they were optimal or um, with normal or optimal cholesterol levels, 50% um, of them had normal or optimal cholesterol levels. So, wow. You know, if we're, we're, if we're told that this molecule is what causes heart attacks or having high amounts of this molecule has a heart attacks, um, then clearly it's, it's irrelevant when someone's presenting to the hospital, right? And yeah. it may almost suggest that um, having too low a cholesterol is in, indicative of it. You can go either way. You could say that, you know, with it being 50-50 like that, you could say that um, lower levels are, are um, giving you higher risk of having a heart attack. Or you could say... Um, it's the it's the higher ones. So that study makes tells us that it's irrelevant. Mm. Um, so it's very interesting. And then there's a lot of uh, uh, associational studies, you know. So they can't really prove causation, um, but most of the studies that um, you know are used to say that cholesterol does cause heart disease are associational type studies. So we can't really draw conclusions from them or or place blame on anything. But then there's also associational studies that show that higher cholesterol, uh, people live longer, 
have you know uh, higher cognitive abilities, have less heart disease, less cancer, less infection, um, all these different things. So that just shows that you know you can't really uh, draw much from associational studies because you can get you know benefits um, uh, or you can look at things from both sides. Um, and we're using the wrong types of studies to to do this, but. But yeah, there's definitely evidence um, that, that higher cholesterol, um, people are healthier and live longer um, and have less disease. So, Yeah, I mean, just anecdotally, when I look at my own health history, and I've had so many people that have had the same exact experience that I have had low cholesterol in my life, but I also had uh, some pretty significant hormonal imbalance. I had PCOS and low cholesterol tested uh, hormonally for PCOS and low cholesterol, now I have high cholesterol and my PCOS is gone, like, which is crazy to me that my hormones are balanced. Um, I have a better hormonal panel at age 41 than I did at 31 and my cholesterol 31 low cholesterol 41 high. Now, it, and I've heard so many people, the same thing. It's like, you know, we have to stop looking at the body as this like closed system. And that's where I feel like a lot of people, we want, we want to be told a definitive yes or no. We don't, we, we like that. We like the, the check boxes and the definitive yes or no. And this is just a kind of a plague in our society. I feel like that we, we don't go deeper. That's why I appreciate people like you who spend the time to actually put together a book for people who, you know, many of us, and, and I think a lot of my audience have been told something like PCOS is not reversible. Um, you're just stuck with this. And this is just the way it is. You're just aging. And this is how it's going to be. And then we come to a ketogenic lifestyle. And we're able to reverse those conditions. But then we have something like our cholesterol goes up. And it's scary, because we're so brainwashed, you know, we're so so we've listened to the whole thing about Ansel Keys. And we're so, it's, we're so brainwashed and so ingrained to believe that that high cholesterol is going to kill us, even though uh, maybe our CRP is zero, uh, our hormones are finally balanced, we're sleeping better, we're feeling better. So how do you kind of combat that when people come to you for health coaching or for advice? Like, how do you really combat that and talk to them about that? Well, what I tell them is uh, they don't always like the answer. Um, some people love it. <laughs> Some people, you know, really don't like it because there's nothing concrete they can hold on to when I give mm -hmm. them this answer. Um, and like you said, people want that black and white. They want the check boxes. They want to know yes or no, I am at risk or I'm not, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I can't remember if we talked, you know, if I if I said this kind of stuff on the last one, but I, I am a firm believer that I don't think blood work can tell you if you're healthy or not. Mm. Um, yeah. And, uh, and I think that um, we've been too focused on that. We've been too so reliant on Western medicine that we really have, we don't even know how to assess how healthy we are outside of that. Um, but I think that if you, if you really think about it and you really um, zero in on it, you know, taking a snapshot of time of someone's body, which is a blood work sample, mm -hmm. and then trying to tell whether that person's healthy or not, you know, this is one instance in their life and it's one aspect of their body, the blood. You know, how do we know how can we tell from that information that the entire body is okay? You know? Yeah. Um, and, you know, and then people will say, well, how do you? And I said, well, I don't think we have a way, you know, we have lots of different things that we can look at to get an idea. But I think that um, we really don't have a way to assess if someone is truly healthy or not, or if that risks for any sort of, you know, disease or, or ailment. 
Um, we have a lot of things that can give us clues. Um, we've got a lot of things that can guide us a little bit. Um, but I think that we've uh, we've outsourced our health to so much of an extent that um, we have no idea how to tell, you know, or to, I guess, be at ease knowing that we are healthy. Um, and then we don't even know uh, if we're not healthy, if we clearly our body's giving us signs that we're not. Most people don't even know what to do to attain that health. We've, we've outsourced that to Western medicine and it's giving us poor results, but it's also giving us, I think, poor tools to assess, to assess health. Um, uh, as far as like a, a longevity state, you know, like in mm-hmm. emergency, Western medicine is amazing. Uh, it can do some pretty miraculous things like modern miracles. Yeah. Um, but in, in a, a, trying to use Western medicine and the tools that it offers to, you know, keep you healthy long term and prevent disease, um, we don't have it. And so, you know, that's my answer. And yeah. people don't really like that. They want to they want to know. And I think that, you know, we need to start becoming comfortable with, with not necessarily knowing all the answers. Yeah, I agree. And and I feel like there are some things that people can, that probably do want to pay attention to, like their blood sugar, mm-hmm. uh, CRP, heart rate variability, things like that, that can kind of give them a clue as to maybe where their health is trending. Um, would you talk about some of that a little bit? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's, it's kind of like, um, you know, the blood work kind of mirrors Western medicine, I think, because, you know, mm-hmm. Western medicine is great in emergency. Right. Um, and uh, but for chronic, like we talked about, not so great. So blood work is kind of the same. It can tell you if something's really going wrong. Right. And we can look at numbers to see if something's really going wrong. But if you don't feel good and you get blood work and it's normal. Yeah. That doesn't I mean, that does not helpful. And so blood work clearly can't tell you everything. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so. Uh, there are definitely markers you want to look at uh, that can assess your risk. Um, and so, you know, in, in the book, I kind of have this this three-pronged approach to, to health in general, but, you know, specifically heart disease. And that is, you know, being metabolically flexible, mm-hmm. um, having low uh, inflammation and oxidative stress, uh, and then having balance in our autonomic nervous system. And so the first two categories, the, the metabolic health and the oxidative stress inflammation can be assessed via blood work. Um, and so you can look at things like uh, the triglyceride to HDL ratio, um, which is the, about the only, I think, useful thing or really useful thing that comes from a lipid panel um, is you can look at that ratio. And that's uh, one of the best indicators of if we're metabolically healthy or not. And you really you usually want that ratio to be 1.5 or lower. Got it. Um, and then uh, you can also do the um, your insulin resistance score or just get a fasting insulin, which is very rarely taken. Yeah, um, so, almost never. Yeah, almost never. And um, and some people are hard pressed to to get their doctor to do it, even if they ask them. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can use that number. You know, if that number itself is high, which you know the lab that I use tells me that below nineteen is fine, and I I say no, we want it. You know, below four would be ideal. Yeah. Um, but below ten in someone that you know, I'd say that that's you know that's. Um, that's okay. It's easier to, to fix when it's below 10. If it's above that, then it's going to be harder to fix. Um, but below four is like ideal. And so you can take that number and a fasting blood sugar and you can calculate your, your insulin resistance score, um, which insulin resistance is, I think, pretty much underlying every chronic disease that, yeah. that we know of. Um, so that's that's probably the, the best number there. But there's lots of different, you know, I guess more obscure ways you can look at it. Um, you can look at the, the um, APO... B to APO A1 ratio. Um, you can look at um, 
the uh, you could even look at um, neutrophil to lymphocyte ratio just from a, um, a CBC, and those kind of things can tell you, um, you know, those numbers combined can tell you, you know, how metabolically healthy you are, um, and if you're, I say, if your metabolism is is working in a way that harms you or helps you, you know, mm. that, that can give you an idea of, of what's going on there, and then. Um, inflammation and oxidative stress i mean you can look at uh you can definitely look at just hscrp and that can give you a general mm -hmm. idea of how inflamed you are um and then again you can take a bunch of other different obscure little little things um, that are rarely taken that can help you assess you know your inflammation and oxidative stress like if you have some sort of um inflammatory process happening it's very clear like you have arthritis or something like mm. that you can take various like um, um, antibodies to see if that inflammation has resulted in, in that type of uh, process happening in your body. But then you can look at things like GGT, which is a liver enzyme mm. that kind of measures, you know, oxidative stress to the liver and how stressed the liver is, how damaged. Um, you can look at uh, markers of like diff various markers of like if there's fats damage or if there's DNA damage in your, in your body. And again, these are very rarely taken, but you can, you can look at those. Um, but in general, you know, if you're HSCRP is, is kind of a good idea. And if it's really high, maybe you want to look at other things to see how bad it is. Um, but that's a good number to be taking there. You could take different interleukins and things to tell you about inflammation. So um, there's definitely ways on bubble you can tell if, if there's inflammation. Um, so that's kind of uh, what I would use to assess, you know, people's metabolic and, and, and oxidative stress and that kind of stuff. Um, and then the last thing is balance in our autonomic nervous system and and the best measure there is heart rate variability, um, in, in my opinion. I think that's the, yeah. the best measure we have for balance in our autonomic nervous system. So yeah. that's those are the things I think we should be paying attention to. And, and you know, I only mentioned LDL and the fact that we shouldn't really pay attention to it. <laughs> yeah, and, and one thing I wanted to ask you about in that, so that I picked up, because of course my mind is like, oh, can I test that on myself? The fasting insulin and your, what did you say? The A1C, you kind of, you do like a little ratio with that to figure the, out. The HOMA insulin resistance score. Okay. So I take the, um, the, uh, fasting insulin and I mm -hmm. multiply that by the fasting blood sugar. Okay. Um, and you take that number, whatever you get and divide it by 405. Okay. And that's your HOMA insulin resistance score. Um, and it should be 1.5 or lower, ideally. Got it. Got it. Okay. So I've never heard that before. That's really interesting. And we don't, yeah, yeah. we just look at blood sugar, just test your blood sugar. Right. Boom. That's it. And we don't understand how insulin is also you as a, a type one diabetic, who's had to work with this for your whole life. Mm -hmm. Um, insulin obviously is extremely important and sometimes people can have low blood sugar and high insulin. And there's that whole, uh, inverse relationship there. And I think that we, a lot of people just have no idea how that works or how that can be a sign of some sort of trouble or inflammation in the body. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and these numbers are hard to take on myself, you know, because mine are a little skewed Yeah, because I don't make my own insulin. I have to inject right. it. So, um, it, it's just, it's a little different. And so I've always wanted to know, like, you know, if, if the amount that, uh, of insulin that I'm injecting, is that comparable to how much, you know, a insulin sensitive non-diabetic is, is using like I, uh, in their body? Like, I, I don't know. Um, maybe one day we'll have the technology to, to find that out. Yeah. I think I would love that. It's, we're just learning so much. And like I said, you know, we can't just take these 
these numbers that are just snapshots in time and assume um, everything's horrible or everything's great. Yeah. Um, it's, yeah, it's tempting, but, right. and like I said, it's I mean, sexy, that. but that, <laughs> yeah. that satisfaction or that, yeah. that comfort of knowing uh, yes or no. And so it's really hard to, to kind of be uh, in limbo, not knowing, but um, you know, we can use them to give us some peace of mind, but um, ultimately it will never tell us whether we're healthy or not. Yeah. Two things I want to touch on. Uh, don't let me forget. The first one is this whole topic of metabolic flexibility. And then I want to go into HRV. So, you know, where, where I am and where you are, where a lot of the carnivore keto kind of people follow us. And that's our, that's, those are our people. Um, but there's been so much talk, especially in the last year about metabolic flexibility and uh, can we talk about that a little bit about what that actually looks like for people and that whole, um, I guess, just sphere of adaptability, which is going to lead into HRV. We want to be adaptable, but right. um, how do you see that? And how does that fit into a carnivore ketogenic lifestyle when we look at metabolic flexibility? Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, I, um, have said before in different podcasts, and, and I say in the book that I, I kind of define health as the ability to adapt mm. to your environment. Uh, and so if you are, you know, eating lots of carbohydrates, especially processed carbohydrates, um, then your body tends to get stuck in this, this glucose burning state, and you lose the flexibility to be able to use different fuel sources, because there's like an oxidative priority and your body will burn glucose first all the time. So if that's constantly in supply, it will burn that all the time and forget or almost not forget, but like downregulate mechanisms it uses to burn or make ketones and burn fatty acids, you know. Mm. And so metabolic flexibility is eating in a way that helps you, um, you know, maintain that flexibility so your body can readily go back and forth between burning different fuel sources. Um, and to do that, and this, you know, in our society today, it's usually restricting carbohydrates mm -hmm. um, to the point where you force your body to have to upregulate those mechanisms of making ketones and burning fatty acids and then burning the ketones. Um, and so that's what we call this ketogenic diet is one where you're encouraging your body to make ketones. And, um, and then once you like reestablish that in your body, that flexibility, then um, it's okay to have like whole food carbohydrates, you know, as long as you're not having them every single day all the time, because then that's going to, you know, take you out of ketosis and your body will downregulate those mechanisms again. Um, but you know, I know people that, you know, become very metabolically healthy, metabolically flexible and, you know, eat a small amount of carbohydrates every day enough that you would think it would kick them out of ketosis, but they wake up in the morning and they're in ketosis or they have yeah. ketones around. Um, and that's, I think what's important is just, maintaining the the having those ketones around so that your body has different fuel sources it can go to um, and that's kind of metabolic flexibility in a nutshell and it's just hard to do this day and age because there's so many foods that kick us out of that metabolic flexibility around um, and you have to kind of diligently work to avoid those so that you can maintain that that uh, uh, the ketones and the metabolic flexibility does that make sense Absolutely. I feel, I mean, it does to me, yeah. <laughs> hopefully it does to my audience too. I mean, it does. Cause I try to listen and stay up on all this stuff. And I feel 
Thank you guys so much for listening to this episode, for tuning in. If you don't mind, would you please head on over to Apple, leave me a review, leave me some stars. That would be really helpful. That does help to get this podcast out to more people. And I think that we need to spread this message. I think so many people can be helped from living a lifestyle like this. And so I want to continue to put out information to bring guests to you guys. And thank you so much for all of your support. This is a pretty new podcast and I've gotten some just amazing support from you guys. And so I really do appreciate that. If you want to take a screenshot of this, tag me on social media, leave me a message, shoot me a message over on Instagram. If you want to talk about something that I mentioned in the podcast, or if there's a guest that you want me to have on, I would greatly appreciate that feedback. So thank you again for all of your support and thanks again to Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this episode. Again, you can use the link in the show notes for Let's Get Checked. Use my code, which is Yogi20, and you can check in on some of these things like the CRP. You can check in on your kidney function. You can check in on your liver enzymes, sex hormones for men, the testosterone levels, that is a big one that can change um, that you want to take a look at you want to pay attention to because low testosterone can cause just a host of issues for men and for women it's usually the lower progesterone that again can cause issues with sleep disruption and i've had to troubleshoot and work through this myself and so i love the service let's get checked because it kind of eliminates all of the travel the time and it's just been extremely helpful so again that link will be down in the show notes for you guys and use my code yogi20 all caps to get 20% off thank you again for listening and let's get back to the show like it's I'm coming to a point in my own journey two years in here really staying strict carnivore for a lot of it um and now I'm playing around with adding some foods back in and playing around with 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 a few things and people are freaking out they're like oh you can't eat that because you're, you're going to ruin this, what you've done over the last two years. And I feel like there's no, um, nuance. There's no room for us to say, you know, maybe we don't have to be in ketosis 24 seven. Maybe we can come out for just a little bit, but our body should be able to go back in. Mm -hmm. Um, and what I'm seeing more and more is the problem. I don't know if you want to weigh in on this, but is that people, and I think you kind of already said this, they're just eating all the time. Um, they're never taking any breaks to let their digestive system rest or for their body to switch back over to ketones. And they're eating uh, processed carbohydrates. They're eating these sugars and starches that are processed um, and these unhealthy oils. I know you didn't mention that, but that's the other thing that I see is the big problem. And I feel like we've kind of done this whole thing in the keto and carnivore community. We've done to healthy carbs, like maybe sweet potatoes and some low starch veggies and fruits and stuff, what we did in the nineties to fat, you know, we've kind of made this big swing, um, in keto and carnivore, and we've demonized some of these things like a sweet potato or a squash, the -hmm. same way that we demonize fat in the nineties. And, uh, we're missing the boat on this. Right. Right. We're, we're, we're swinging too hard, you know? Yeah. Um, Yeah. And, uh, and yeah, so I, I think that, you know, because you can get into situations where it's not like, uh, it's not like uh, terribly detrimental or whatever, but if you're in ketosis too much, 
you can get um, what's called like glucose sparing mm-hmm. that can make you appear that you're insulin resistant. Yes. It's, it's really, I'm so glad you brought that up. Yeah. But it's really, you know, um, physiologic insulin resistance. Like your body's choosing to do this. It's not being forced to because it's the only option and it's kind mm-hmm. of pathologic, you know? Um, and so that, that can happen. And so that, that's an imbalance, you know, that I don't know is that, um, is probably I don't know that it's problematic, but it is something that happens. Um, yeah. Because I know people that you know claim to have eaten you know carnivore straight carnivore for twenty years or so. You know, and mm-hmm. so in that person, um, you know, and they look healthy. They don't really have health issues. I mean, these are single examples. Right. But, um, so and and I would assume that they're in this physiologic insulin resistance, um, where their body is is so um, adapted to ketones and fatty acids that it reserves all the glucose that you do make from proteins and fats um, for the, um, like the red blood cells in the brain that need a little bit of glucose. Yes. Um, and so, and so, and then if you eat carbohydrates, then um, your, your body has trouble responding to them. Yes. Because it's just not used to it. Right. Yeah. And so, but that usually goes away within, you know, a few days if you just continue to eat carbohydrates. Um, whereas if you get into the state of, of metabolic inflexibility where you're only burning carbohydrates and you're not able to burn fats and ketones, that can take a lot longer to upregulate the mechanisms of making fats and ketones again. So to me, that seems like a more problematic um, uh, situation than the uh, glucose sparing where your body's preserving the glucose for other things. But but I don't know for sure. And, yeah. And I'm comfortable saying that, that I don't I don't know. You know, I think that we need to be comfortable saying we don't know. Um, so yeah. And then there was another aspect to your question and I forgot the oils, the oils. Yeah. So that's, that's a whole nother thing too, because the oils, they seem to be a pretty big suspect when yeah. we, when we get to, you know, what's actually breaking our metabolism and causing this pathologic insulin resistance. Um, because the, the carbohydrates, you know, they've been blamed in low carb communities for a long time. Um, and they definitely, this, the processed carbohydrates definitely don't help yeah. um, when, when someone is insulin resistant. They definitely make the situation worse. Um, but I don't know that we'll ever really know if, uh, if just eating processed carbohydrates without the vegetable oils would cause insulin resistance. Mm. Um, it, it may, because you fatigue the, the, the cells in the pancreas maybe that, that make insulin, or maybe you, um, they make less insulin, but the vegetable oils, the seed oils, uh, seem to be the big player when it comes to breaking our metabolism to the point where our um, our body um, chooses, I guess, uh, because of the situation, chooses to be systemically insulin resistant. Yeah. Um, and that you know has a lot of you know mechanisms that happen there uh, in within the mitochondria and electron transport train, and then and then in the fat cells, it kind of signals different things to the fat cells that um, that cause them to be you know. Um, responsive to insulin and then the rest of the body less responsive to insulin um, so insulin resistance um, and so uh, yeah and and if you look at the way these vegetable oils these seed oils are metabolized because of their their double bonds and because of their unsaturatedness um, they they do something to our mitochondria and our energy production mechanisms that that break our metabolism and then you break your metabolism and then you try and rely on that metabolism to process, process carbohydrates. And that's a bad recipe, right? 
Yeah. Um, and so it's just like this combination of things is what's really done us in. So if you if you boil it down, it's like baked goods. That's that's what's done us in. Right? Yeah. It's the vegetable oils and the processed carbohydrates. Um, so so yeah, I, I think that uh, that's a that's a huge deal. Um, the the vegetable oils, and you can see that they've increased since you know the early 1900s in our yeah. diet, and so has disease. That's just an association, so you can't prove one or the other, but it's uh, it definitely correlates, you know. Yeah, definitely. And going back to this whole physiological insulin resistance thing, it's I've had so many conversations about this this topic lately of like, you know, what happens in the space as we look at a handful of people and say these these people have been carnivore for X years, these people have done keto for X years, and we literally are talking about maybe 10 people. And I feel like there's a big danger to that. And when you start, I know that you work with people as a coach and I work with people and talk with people. Um, and there's a lot of people that run these higher blood sugar numbers just constantly. And they haven't had a carb in a couple of years. I was starting to do that too. Um, and then I had to switch to going super, super high fat in order to make that stop. But I was running fasted numbers, nineties, a hundred, my A1C was starting to go up and, um, I feel like this keeps happening more and more and we're being told like, Oh, don't worry about it. It's fine. You're not eating carbs. And the fact that she were like, well, I don't know. Um, <laughs> we we have, we, when people are so adamant of like, Oh, it doesn't matter. It's fine. Um, that's dangerous to me. That's, that's a warning signal right there. We really just don't know. Yeah. I, I think that it's more healthy to say we don't know. Um, it, again, you have to look at the health of the person. If someone's blood sugar is going up and they're, you know, overweight, they have other comorbidities and they're, you know, nearing type two diabetes, then yeah, that's not okay. If, if their blood sugar is going up and they're getting healthier, that's less of a concern to me, but yeah. we don't know the long-term ramifications of that. Um, or, um, or if that's a good thing for the body to be doing, you know, I, I yeah. think that, I think that we have to step back and, you know, think about things as far as that adaptation goes, you know, your, your body, humans are pretty amazing. I mean, the fact that, you know, we're still, um, alive and kicking or that some people are, despite all the environmental, you know, uh, yeah. harm that's been, been caused to their bodies in this modern day world. It's pretty amazing how resilient the body is. And, um, and I think that it just shows that we are, ha our success as a species, I think is rooted in our body's ability to adapt to so many different situations. Mm -hmm. And I think that, again, going back to the blood work, rather than looking at this blood work and saying, oh my gosh, this number is going way out of control or whatever like that, it, it's it's more, um, I guess, prudent to step back and say, okay, the body's adapting. Yeah. Um, and and then also recognizing that, you know, in as much as we can, can kind of, um, uh, I guess, guess about our ancestral lives. You know, we had seasons, we had different foods available. Mm -hmm. And so things would have changed yeah. you know, throughout the year. And so maybe, maybe, you know, we, we can, we can adapt to a different food source and different environmental triggers to one part of the year and then adapt back the other way in another part of the year. Um, and that's just how, that's just how we survived, you know, and that's just what gave us that, that long-term success that humans have had. Um, and, and so we observe that in blood work and we're, we've been trained though, that blood work is supposed to be the same all the time. Mm -hmm. This is what it's supposed to be every single time we take it. When mm -hmm. in reality, it's going to change based on, um, you know, what environment we put our bodies in, how, how that environment changes. 
and that includes diet, that includes stress, that includes all kinds of things. And, and sometimes that change just means you're healthy because you're mm -hmm. adapting, you know? Um, I, I tell people all the time that they're like, my blood pressure was high the other day when I went to the doctor. And it's like, well, you were probably stressed about stressed something, out. you know, yeah. and that's, that's, if your blood, if your blood pressure didn't go up, I'd be more concerned, you know, yeah, yeah. because you're not adapting to the situation. Um, yeah. and, and you can only, you know, diagnose chronic high blood pressure with like three or four office visits in a row where it's high. Yeah. You know, and even then, um, the body's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. It's just, it's getting the signal to trigger high blood pressure. So we yeah. have to change that signal. So hopefully that kind of gives people a picture of, uh, or an example of that kind of thing. Yeah, I think so. And, and what I tell people is you got to pay attention to your symptoms. For me, when I started seeing those blood sugar numbers be higher and my A1C starting to go up, I was also starting to have a lot of sleep disturbances. I was also starting to not have a lot of energy. I was starting to have a decline in those areas. So a lot of time people will ignore those symptoms because, you know, they're being told, okay, we don't need to worry about this. We don't need to worry about that. It's fine. Uh, just keep on ketoing, keep on carnivoring. It's all good. Um, yet their sleep is suffering and their energy is suffering. And that probably segues a little bit into that whole HRV discussion a little bit as well. Yeah. And, and before we move on to that, I want to know yeah. what you said is that, um, I think that, you know, it's, it, you're very, uh, in tune with your body yeah. and you noticed that you weren't sleeping as well or something like that. Whereas, you know, but you know, people like us who've had like health issues our whole life and we've mm -hmm. been paying attention to this stuff, it's easier for us to do that, but that may not be the case for other people. And so maybe they go on this diet and they start feeling these changes and they don't know if that's normal for them or not. Yeah. You know, so it can be difficult and you have to kind of gather some data, I would say on yourself and, and what's normal and abnormal for you before you can really decide, is this good for me or bad for me? Right. And, and the real tragedy is that, again, we've outsourced our health to, you know, Western medicine um, or various types of medicine, it doesn't have to be Western medicine. Uh, so much so that we're not very in tune with with us, you know, with ourselves, and then that that makes us dependent on them. Yeah. Um, when in reality, we should learn more about ourselves and how we react to responses, so we can kind of um, uh, assess our our own health, you know, based on 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 our what our normal is. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there's a difference between an adaptation stress the body's going through, like for an immediate adaptation, like say you're switching from a highly processed diet over to a more ketogenic or carnivore type of diet, you are going to have probably sleep disruption and not feeling well and having a change in your energy initially uh, when you do make that switch over because it is a stressful thing for the body. But if you've been doing it for a year or two years and then you start having those kind of same symptoms again, it might be time to pause and say, okay, I'm having another form of adaptation, maybe I, I've been doing this too long, or maybe there's some other change or some other stress that's going on in my body that I need to take a step back and look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of these therapies people talk about, like, you know, hot, cold therapy. Yes. It's designed to change our environment so that we, so that we can maintain that ability to adapt to things. Yeah. Um, and the same can be said for diet. You know, yeah. we need to, I think it needs to change a little bit every now and then. I think that People should focus on animal foods, get the, the amount of nutrients, they, the, the most nutrients they can from animal foods. Um, and and that can be a good base, but the diet can shift and change. And I think that's healthy as long as we're eating whole foods. 
Yeah. I try to, my new slogan for my podcast is meat-based, but dogma-free because (laughs) I know for me that meat and animal-based, that's where I feel my best. I get my nutrition, I absorb it, um, but I can't get so stuck in Mm -hmm. carnivore, 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 or whatever that I, I can't listen to my own signals and I can't pay attention when I'm having a, my body's trying to tell me something, you know? Exactly. Yeah. 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 So segue into HRV and, you know, we've just, we're in February, 2021 here and we've all been through 2020. And I know, uh, I heard you talk on another podcast about, um, I think it was the, the fat fueled family, Danny and Mata and, Danny was talking about his aura ring. I don't even have mine on right now because I've had some stressful stuff happen. And I know I'm like, I don't even want to see this. Yeah. <laughs> like, I know it's not going to be good. And I know that I, my diet and everything is is good. And my routines are on point. But sometimes you, when you're just going through stress, like how that affects your, your numbers um, can really influence your health. Definitely. And this is this is the thing I struggle with the most is stress, um, and and dealing with it. Um, and the world stresses me out, you know. <laughs> um, and I and I take it to heart. My mom has always told me that of the three kids that she had, I felt things the hardest. I always mm-hmm. I was always feeling things the most. So things um, they get to me, and and you can imagine that you know I call them health injustices, you know, that were going on in in 2020 um, were hard for me. Yeah. Um, but that being said, there are things we can do, you know, heart rate variability that can assess our, um, again, our, our, our balance, our ability to adapt to different stressful environments and go back and forth between a stress state and a non-stress state. And so, you know, our autonomic nervous system is the, the system in our body that, um, through our senses, um, assesses whether we're in a safe or threatening environment. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so, you know, from the time we're born, we're supposed to get like our, our autonomic nervous system is, is incomplete. It's not fully developed, just like many things about humans uh, when they're born. Um, and, uh, and so we're supposed to get signals from our parents that we're safe to mm-hmm. set a baseline of what safe is. And so you can imagine that kids who go through trauma um, will have a different baseline of what safe is. Mm-hmm. And so they can be, that, that can mean they can more readily get into a stress state um, or a fight or flight state um, when, when they shouldn't. And so it's, uh, it's things like that, um, but it's also things like uh, just the, the world that we've created for ourselves as humans mm-hmm. and how all these, um, these unnatural, I would say, stressors that in our lives or not even necessarily unnatural, but are uh, maybe unrealistic responses to them. So humans are the only species on the planet that can, you know, think their way into a stress response. Yes. Um, other animals, you know, don't aren't really thinking about too much about the future. Um, and like an example I give is that like a, you know, a, a chimpanzee um, and or bonobo or um you know, our closest living relatives, you know, genetically, um, that will make like little tools to get into an ant mound, right? And get the termites and things and ants out of it so they can eat them. And then they chuck the tool and then they walk a little ways. And then there's another one. They're like, oh, 
I need a tool again. So they make another tool, but they don't have the foresight to think, oh, I should take that tool I made with mm. me. Right. And so humans have this foresight. We can, we can um, prepare for the future and think about what we need in the future or what might happen in the future. And that's been incredibly advantageous to us, obviously. But it's also kind of, uh, it's a double-edged sword because now we can worry about things mm-hmm. and, you know, we can see something happen to somebody else, you know, a million miles away yeah. and fear that it's going to happen to us or have something stressful happen to us and think about it for the next three months. Um, yeah. And, and so it's just very, that situation creates this imbalance in our stress response and we start to get stuck in a stress response or we start to maybe not get stuck in it, but... Um, our body's like pre-programmed to have the stress response and something that's not really that life-threatening or even that stressful triggers a stress response in somebody. Um, And so that, that can lead to a lot of issues because you can imagine that that stress response is, is reserved for getting away from something that's Mm life-threatening. And if your body is getting signals because you're thinking it into that response constantly about getting away from a threat, then it's not thinking about things like sleeping. Yep. Not thinking about things like digesting or procreating uh, or detoxification. Um, and so you get stuck in this stress response that people have, you know, sexual dysfunction, they have insomnia, they have detoxification issues, they have digestive issues. Yes. I mean, how many times people say, I feel my stress in my gut, you know? Uh, huge. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's kind of what I think we're dealing with as a society is this chronic um, state of, or this, almost high alert state of our stress response. And, um, and I think that that is extremely overlooked, especially in heart disease. Um, you know, when people read the book, they'll realize how important that is and how, you know, it's a thousand times more important than what your LDL is, in my opinion. Yeah. And so one way we can assess that is, is heart rate variability, which is just, you know, if, if you were to, you know, take your pulse right now um, and you took like a slow, deep breath in, you'd feel your pulse quicken uh, very slightly, but it would quicken. And then if you took a slow breath out, it would slow down. And the difference between the fastest it gets when you take a breath in and the slowest you get when you take a breath out is your heart rate variability, like how much it varies between your breathing. Um, and uh, and so the, the bigger the variability is, the more able your body is to, to um, adapt to different stress states or stress or non-stress states. Um, and so we want a, we want a bigger heart rate variability, a higher number. Um, mm. and so, um, the lower that number gets, the more, um, the more streamlined we are in, in our response and we're not able to adapt to certain stresses. And so then, you know, maybe you, you experience something stressful in your life or, um, uh, or something, uh, um, stressful events or a very stressful one instance. And if your body is in that state, um, it could be that it leads you down um, a, a pretty poor path uh, as far as uh, uh, health, you know. Yeah. Um, and which makes sense because, you know, if again, if we're constantly thinking we're stressed, how exhausting would that be, you know? Yeah. Yeah, I've been doing a lot of study on the autonomic nervous system and just how we get stuck in these responses and going back to trauma. And it's not just like, Oh, you're, you know, you had some traumatic event happen in childhood or something really obvious. It can be anesthesia. It can be in utero. It can be like you're bullied in school or there's so many ways that we 
our nervous system can kind of get stuck. And um, someone I follow, Irene Lyon, who I've had on the show, she talks about the uh, the vagus nerve and how, you know, we talk about the parasympathetic nervous system, how, you know, it's all just relaxed and calm, but there's another part of the parasympathetic nervous system where we actually go into shutdown. And humans, again, like you mentioned, we are advanced and uh, one example she gives is if, you know, there's an animal that gets attacked and almost dies, um, they go into that shutdown, but they're able to come out. They're, they're healthy. They're able to come out. They don't go back to their tribe and, and say, oh, I almost got killed. And um, this whole thing happened. And then like a couple of days later, oh, I almost got killed. And this whole thing happened a week later. It's because evolutionarily, they wouldn't be able to stay alive if they continue to stay stuck in that stress response. But as humans, we have a stressful thing or a traumatic thing happen, and we can actually stay in shutdown. And what I think happens with a lot of people is they stay in that shutdown state and they're in fight flight. So they've got like the brakes and the gas on at the same time. And if you have the brakes and the gas on too long, eventually what's going to happen is that system's going to burn out and you're going to have the autonomic nervous system controls the thyroid and the gut and, and all these things, you know, maybe genetically, whatever you're predisposed to people in your family have heart problems or people in your family have gut dysfunction. Um, if you stay in that state of, of breaks and gas for too long, something's got to give. Um, yeah. And yeah. in the book, I, there's a chapter early on where I talk about um, kind of the evolution of our vagus nerve um, mm. because in in reptiles it was just kind of one there was like one pathway in the vagus nerve the dorsal yep. motor nucleus and um and in reptiles they have this this ability to like like literally play dead you know yes they exactly have a stress response and shut down and play dead and i guess that was evolutionarily advantageous for them um somehow um that i don't understand but that was preserved in them and so yep. they could do that and then, but, but reptiles are very, they're cold blooded. They have very slow metabolisms. Like they can, they can uh, shut down like that. They can shut down organs for, for a time and still survive. Mm -hmm. um, and so when mammals evolved, uh, the vagus nerve had to evolve too, because if mammals, which are very metabolically active, uh, very warm blooded, um, I mean, you think about lizards, they, they can be kind of slow. They can do fast things um, for a short distance. Whereas mammals are much more energetic and they can move a lot more uh, and they're warm blooded. And so um, that's because the metabolism is way higher. And so if, if you had a stress response and literally the organs shut down, they wouldn't survive very long because you mm -hmm. need that, that constant supply of energy. And so the vagus nerve kind of split into two different pathways, the dorsal yes. motor nucleus and then the nucleus ambiguous. And so the nucleus ambiguous is what kind of um, allows us to kind of apply the brakes in that stress response so that this mm -hmm. shutdown mechanism doesn't happen. However, um, and that, that stayed consistent through the evolution of humans, you know, we are mammals. And um, however, I don't think that evolution accounted for this very quick change in environment and, and, um, and uh, stressful lifestyle that humans yeah. have made for themselves. And so there's no way that we could have, you know, adapted some other type of mechanism in the vagus nerve to help us deal with that. And so there is a point where the, uh, it can get shut down and it kind of resorts back to that, that old shutdown mechanism, um, which can lead to organ shutdown, which mm -hmm. is very curious that things like heart attacks um, yes. uh, kind of happen or even 
um, you know, there's liver infarcts and kidney infarcts and all this kind of stuff that like organs literally shut down. Um, it's just that the heart's most connected to our emotional state. So it happens most frequently there. Um, so it, it's, it's really fascinating when you, when you tease it all out. Um, and it, and it kind of illuminates what's actually going on, um, in the modern day and then it helps us, you know, figure out what we can do about it. Yeah, it's so true. It's and and I love these conversations because they're not really being had. We're mm -hmm. so we're so adept to like I said, like we started the conversation. We want to look at blood markers. We want to look at cholesterol. We want to know a definitive yes or no, and we want to know exactly what to do. Um, but I've talked to so many people and experienced to myself. If we're constantly just like pushing one lever over and over and over again we can send ourselves into that shutdown state. I mean, I did it with fasting. Um, I did it with, I even did it with cold therapy. I put, I did too much stress on my body with cold therapy and ended up sending my body the opposite direction. So I feel like we have to um, keep having these conversations and look at things with nuance and, and not just, and you know, have to have a definitive answer for everything. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Cool. Well, this has been really awesome. Um, if you wouldn't mind the title of your book, I'm going to link that in the show notes and how can people find you, work with you? What are you up to? What's coming next? Yeah, um, uh, the title of the book is Understanding the Heart, Uncommon Insights into Our Most Commonly Diseased Organ. Uh, and it's uh, available on Amazon. Uh, I self-publish, so it's the only place that it's available um, people ask me if they could not use Amazon and I applaud them for that, but that's <laughs> the only option I have. So, um, and then my website is resourceyourhealth.com and that's where my blog is and people can contact me for coaching and things. And then my, um, social media is, uh, Dr. Stephen Hussey, Dr. Stephen Hussey. So people can find me there. Awesome. Well, this has been wonderful and so informational. So I know people are going to look you up and um, I've read the book. So I definitely recommend you guys check it out. And uh, thanks again for being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Awesome. All right, guys, thank you so much for listening to this episode. As I mentioned earlier, please take a screenshot, tag me on social media, feel free to send me a message if there's something that you want to discuss. If you heard something in this episode, I love hearing from you guys. I love getting messages from you guys. It's just a really fun part of what I do to interact with my audience, to interact with people who listen to the content that I put out. It's really cool. So thank you guys for always being so cool and supportive and for sharing my content across social media, for tagging me. I just truly appreciate it. Again, head on over to Apple, leave me a review, leave me some stars. It really does help to get this information out to more people. Next week I have on Dr. Anna Kabeca and we really talk more about perimenopause, menopause, and diet. I found it to be a really interesting conversation, especially for some of my women who are a little bit more stuck. Um, I, I'm finding that women are a little bit more stuck. And so instead of saying, you're not doing it right, you're doing it wrong, Let's explore some different topics. Let's talk to some different people, which is what this podcast is all about, is stepping outside the echo chamber, 
being meat-based but dogma-free and just getting new points of view, getting new sets of eyes to look at problems. So I'm going to continue to do this work. I have so many amazing episodes already recorded. It's like I want to fast forward and just put all of them out at once, but that probably is not the best idea. So I'm just going to do one week at a time on Wednesdays. And uh, thank you guys again for all of your support. Please check out Let's Get Checked. Again, use my code YOGI20. So many amazing things you can just test there from your home. And I will talk with you guys in the next episode. Thanks again for everything. Have a wonderful rest of your day.